Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 14. When the British government commissioned an artist to paint the portrait of Puritan leader Oliver Cromwell, the painter noticed an ugly wart on the tip of Cromwell's nose. His desire was to enhance Cromwell's image. And so in the portrait, he excluded the wart. But when the portrait was unveiled, Oliver Cromwell was upset. Rather than appreciate the artist's efforts, he ordered that the wart be added to the portrait. He wanted to be seen warts and all, coining a phrase that's still used today. And yet, this has always been the Bible's approach. In fact, to me, one of the proofs of the Bible's inspiration is how it treats its heroes. Works of antiquity rarely depicted the good guys in an unfavorable light. Historical touch-ups were commonplace. Hey, get too honest about the king's mistakes, (laughs) and he might choose to silence the author. But the biblical writers painted their subjects warts and all. Rather than gloss over the blunders and the blemishes, they hang them out on the line for all to see. The Bible is brutally honest with its heroes. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, of course Peter. And obviously add David to that list. Indeed, David was a man after God's own heart but he was also flawed in a sin-prone man. He was guilty of lust and deceit and adultery and manipulation and murder. David could rule a kingdom and command men, but he couldn't control his own children. In chapter 14, David is reeling. The Bathsheba Gate scandal has rocked not only the nation, but his own household. His kids have lost respect for their dead, and they've started to mimic his mistakes. You remember the story, Amnon rapes Tamar. Her brother Absalom kills his half-brother, Amnon. Absalom flees the palace, and David longs to go to him. He loves his son, but his royal pride won't allow reconciliation. As I mentioned last week, David seems too weak to discipline his kids, but then too proud to forgive them. He refuses to take responsibility for either end of his parenting, either prevention or reconciliation. And as a result, David's household spins out of control. Absalom's actions brought shame to David. And publicly, David spouted a hard line toward Absalom. He was really acting more like Saul, worried about his image, only concerned with his own reputation. Joab, though, David's general, he understands his lifelong friend, David. He knows the king's heart like few other people. And Joab understands that beneath this public persona, the king loves his son. And the king desires to be reunited with Absalom. He feels the king's pain over the separation that's occurred between he and Absalom. And Joab sees how despondent the king has become and how it's affecting his ability to rule the nation. Thus, the commander-in-chief has turned to Jello, at least in the eyes of Joab. Joab knows that the only solution is to get David and Absalom together. And so he comes up with a plan 
to soften David's heart toward Absalom. Chapter 14. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. He goes out and he hires a professional actress. This is all being staged. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons. And the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Now understand what's going on. Joab is taking a play from Nathan's playbook. You remember when Nathan went to confront the king about his sin with Bathsheba? You remember he used a subtle approach? He caught David off guard by posing a parable, sort of a parallel parable to David's actions. Well, here Joab is following the very same example. He brings up this woman and she tells her story. And then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. The problem here is that the king is estranged from his son. And now he brings up this story of a family that's been alienated and estranged from one another. Well, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. There were people calling out for justice and her son's punishment. But David believes in mercy. He has received mercy, and he's willing to stand up for this woman's son and have mercy upon him. Keep all this in mind. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David goes as far as to issue a royal pardon to the woman's son on behalf of the pleas of his mother. It was an accident. They they got to tussling and 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 it went too far, and it was an accident. He didn't mean to kill him, and therefore no one should lay a hand on him. Again, the whole ploy was conjured up by Joab in order to soften the king's heart, to create some empathy toward the ache of separation. David's experiencing this, but he's he's kind of buried it. He suppressed it. And, And now the whole idea is here, you know, if David starts showing mercy toward estranged sons that he doesn't know, 
then perhaps it will be a small leap for him to reconcile the son that he does know, his own son, Absalom. You follow what Joab's doing here? Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And she is about to lure the boom. And he said, say on. So the woman said, and I'm sure before she said it, she gulped hard and she mustered all of the courage she could because she's about to boldly confront the king of Israel. She says, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Wow. David, you're willing to show mercy on my supposed son. Why won't you show mercy on your own son in your own home to your own family? You know, I think this is a message for us tonight. We're so quick to want to forgive and show mercy toward others, but we hold our spouse to such a strict line. We're so hard on the people we love. We'll overlook mistakes in others that we won't overlook in our own wife or in our own husband. You know, we'll have mercy on someone else's kids, but when it comes to our own kids, boy, we're, we're going to put them under the thumb. What a lesson for us. Hey, You've shown mercy on on my son. Why don't you show mercy on your own son? Well, verse 14 contains a profound truth that really underpins our salvation. It says, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground. Talk about people in general. We'll all die one day. We'll all become just like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Listen carefully. Life is too short for relationships to be interrupted. Now, don't you see? see, Life is like water. You spill it on the ground, it's gone. Life is so quick. Families shouldn't be broken. Friends shouldn't stay separated. Estrangement and alienation from people we love. It shouldn't occur. Relationships shouldn't be interrupted. Life is too short. We need to learn to forgive, and we need to learn to forget. When God sees someone alienated and isolated, living apart from people he loves, the Father does whatever he can to bring that banished one home again. Understand what fills the heart of our Father in heaven. Reconciliation. Reconciliation between he and man. Reconciliation between man and his fellow man. Reconciliation, reunions, is what fills the heart of our Father in heaven. And God devises means to reconcile both you to your fellow man and you to your Father in heaven. The means by which he brings his banished ones home is Jesus Christ. Now, therefore, he says, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maid, the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. 
Your maidservant said, The word of my Lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. David was blindsided once before by Nathan. He senses that it's happening again. And then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my Lord the king speak. And so the king said, This is Joab, isn't it? (laughs) Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? He puts you up to this. And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right. I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Okay, I see your point. Go get him. Bring him home. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur, And he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Now David brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. But this is not the way it should have been done. You remember verse 14. Again, I told you, it's a profound verse. God devises means to bring his banished ones home again. Understand, God doesn't redeem and reconcile a person with no reason or with no rationale. In other words, there's a plan to our salvation. God expects repentance and faith on the recipient's part. He doesn't allow people to just ignore their sin and then expect to be saved. It doesn't work that way. You have to confess. You have to repent. You have to put your faith in the sacrifice. And he provides that sacrifice to both satisfy justice and to show mercy. God's plan of salvation allows God to save face and save us at the same time. Justice is served. Mercy is extended. F.B. Meyer puts it like this. Some seem to think that God can welcome his Absaloms back just because he wills to do so. If he did, there would be revolt right through the universe. In other words, this is why we talk about God's plan of salvation. God doesn't just randomly, you know, you're saved, you're not, you're saved, you're not. There's a plan. There is a means. God devises means to bring the banished ones home again. There's a part you play. There's a part he plays. There's a working out of the situation in the, in the reconciliation. God doesn't just pardon people randomly. You can't be saved unless you follow his plan. And this is what needs to get explained to our friends. How many people do you know? Are you going to heaven when you die? Oh, I hope so. No, there's a plan here. There's a plan in place. There's a part that God has done. There's work that you have to do. There's faith that you have to show. And you've got to explain the plan. There's a plan to salvation. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain to you the means by which God has devised to bring you home to him. 
That's important. You see, the problem was David brought Absalom back, but he had no plan. Verse 24. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. Now, what kind of return is that? Let him come back, but I ain't going to talk to him. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. David brings Absalom, but requires nothing of him. David mistakenly assumes that you can have restoration without repentance. Guys, don't make that mistake. It's impossible. You can't have reconciliation without repentance. Now, it's up to us to forgive people. It's up to us to forgive But there can't be a reconciliation of the relationship without there being repentance on the part of the person who's harmed the other. Reconciliation requires repentance. David here expects it all to happen, you know, just bingo, without expecting anything of Absalom. This is a painful error. And it eventually leads to Absalom's all-out rebellion to David. It's interesting, nor does David require anything of himself here. David should have done some things himself. He should have sat down with Absalom. He should have greeted him. He should have talked with him. I mean, for two years, he ignores his son. David would have been better off not even bringing the boy back than bringing him back the way he did. Well, now all Israel, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, There was no blemish in him. Absalom was a Hebrew hunk. He won the Mr. Israel contest. And the trait that made him so handsome was his long hair. What is it about long hair? Women love men with long hair. There he is. There's proof right there. Why is it that women just go nuts over a guy with long hair? And Absalom kept his hair long. He had one annual haircut, one haircut a year, we're told. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. You know, that's the deal. You know, women love long hair. I hate long hair. Men hate long hair. Yeah, it's heavy. It's hot, you know. And, and Absalom, once a year, got a haircut, whether he needed it or not, again. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. 200 shekels weighed about six pounds. The guy grew six pounds of hair a year. Guys, you need to go on a diet? Get a haircut. And and Absalom, he had this coarse, thick, bushy hair. Absalom had an afro. That's what he, he had a fro. (laughs) Now, I looked long and hard to find a Jewish guy with an afro. Here he is right here. This is Absalom right here. This is probably what he looked like. There you go. And to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. Isn't that interesting? Tamar. Who else was named Tamar? His sister. The one who was raped by Amnon. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Absalom names his daughter after his sister Tamar. I don't think Absalom 
ever got over his half-brother Amnon raping his sister. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, notice this, but did not see the king's face. This was terrible on David's part. Get rid of your pride, man. Life is too short to do this to your son. If he didn't want a relationship with his son, why did he allow him to return? The truth is, is that David did want a relationship with his son, and his son wanted a relationship with him. How every son, did you know this, every son longs for his dad's acceptance. In high school, I played football. I was the quarterback, and, and I would run for touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. And, and the girls would be squealing my name and pom-poms and, oh, you know, and, and, of course, the older I get, the better I was. But, but you know, all this adulation and the fans going crazy and everything. But, you know, I, I had everybody blocked out. It was only one person I saw in the stands. It was my dad. And I would always look up there for my dad's approval. And I was never really satisfied. There was always an ache inside until I looked up there and saw my dad do this. That was his son. Every young man longs for his dad's acceptance. And the fact that David withholds it from Absalom, and relatively, you know, obviously for no reason, really, it only pours fuel on the rage that is brewing in this boy's heart. David is stoking Absalom's rebellion without realizing it. you got to understand, David is a classic example of how not to parent If you want to wreck your kids, if you want to ruin your kids, here's what you do. Follow David's example. First of all, set a bad example yourself. Go out and commit adultery. Do something like that. Then fail to discipline your children when they follow in your footsteps and and commit immorality of their own. And isn't this what happens sometimes? You know, we made those mistakes when we were in high school. You You know, we were promiscuous, you know, we were immoral, and we carry this guilt, and so when we see our kids doing the same things, we're reluctant to step up and say, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. You know, we make that mistake. We need to get over it. Hey, just because we made the mistake doesn't mean our kids have to. What's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. We need to admit what we did was a mistake. And we need to resolve ourselves to help our kids do better and live higher and live more godly lives than we did. David didn't do that. He made the mistake. Then he failed to discipline his kids when they followed in his footsteps. Then he got angry at his children for the sin that they committed, following in his footsteps. And he alienated himself from them as a result. Oh, they're an embarrassment. And so he alienated himself from them. And then he ignored the problem and invited them back into his good graces, pretending to forgive them, only to continue to hold the grudge and not really forgive them. You see what's going on here? I mean, this is a recipe for rebellion in the heart of your kids. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. 
Well, that'll get your attention. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And parents, maybe your kids are setting your fields on fire because that's the only way they can get your attention. The only time you bother to talk to him is when he gets into trouble. What's he have to do to talk to his dad? Get in trouble? Some of you have set up that kind of scenario. Well, then Joab arose and he came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Jajir? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. Absalom is desperate. He wants to communicate to the king, to his dad. And so he tells Job, you need to go to my dad and you need to tell him, look, either embrace me or execute me. But I'm miserable living in this limbo, not really knowing where I stand with my own father. All dads, every father in the house tonight needs to pay attention to this. Absalom is an adult. But his relationship with his father is still shaping who he is and how he feels and what he thinks about himself. This is why I say a father has an inexplicable power over his kids. And dad, when you withhold your acceptance because of nothing more than your stubborn pride, you are doing irreparable damage to your family. Get over it. Forgive them. Love them. Look past their mistakes and love them. They're your kids. Verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Father and son are finally united. But it was too little too late. David's belated blessing couldn't uproot the seeds of rebellion that had already been sown in Absalom's heart. And a confrontation between father and son is on the horizon now that is going to draw the entire nation into a vicious and bloody civil war. Chapter 15. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. In other words, he develops his own posse, sort of his own secret service. Now, Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. And whose fault would that be? Well, the king's. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. Oh, if I were king, I would be different. I would be a good king. Justice would be served. We heard a lot of that in this past election. We'll see. (laughs) And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, 
that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom created the impression that King David was too busy for the common man's concerns. Oh, but he would take the time. He would make the effort to hear their grievances. And slowly, Absalom begins to steal the affection of the people. He begins to turn the hearts of the people away from David toward himself. A rebellion, a coup d'etat is brewing. Well, now it came to pass, after 40 years, this went on for a long time, that Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. (laughs) Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. He's planning his coup d'etat against his own father. And don't miss the significance of the location. You remember before David reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel? He reigned in Judah where? In Hebron, that's right. He ruled seven and a half years in Hebron before he changed his capital to Jerusalem. And Absalom is returning to his father's first throne to institute his revolt. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. And they went along innocently and did not know anything. They're just kind of getting lured in. Over the years, Absalom has been building support for an overthrow. And he's courted friends in high places. And and he's gotten people on his side. But these 200 men, they're not really privy to the plot. They just happen to accompany him to Hebron. One of the key defectors, though, was one of David's chief counselors. Trusted advisors. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, where he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And, you know, having this Ahithophel on his team Ahithophel was a shrewd dealer. This added momentum to Absalom's cause. It's interesting that David refers to Ahithophel in Psalm 41 verse 9 and in Psalm 55 verses 12 through 14. And David remembers the pain of being betrayed by someone so close to him as Ahithophel. Let me read to you David's words. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. In other words, this was, we worshiped God together, he's saying. And now you've betrayed me. As the old saying goes, 
Against a foe I can defend, but heaven help me against a disloyal friend. Wounds that hurt most are those inflicted by supposed friends. Well, Ahithophel, he was wise, he was skillful, and like Absalom, he was very bitter. For his family tree reveals why Ahithophel betrayed David. When you piece together 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, and chapter 11, verse 3, you discover that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. She was the daughter of Eliam, one of David's mighty men, who was the grandchild of Ahithophel. Evidently, Ahithophel and Absalom had one thing in common. They never got over their bitterness toward David. He resented David for how he broke up Uriah and Bathsheba, for how David destroyed their family. He resented him. And bitterness is quick to find a buddy. Bitterness always finds a buddy, trust me. And that's why Ahithophel joins in Absalom's revolt. Verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, and we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David knows that Absalom's revolt has gained momentum. And so he decides to flee Jerusalem and regroup in the Judean wilderness. Ironically, David has come full circle. (laughs) He ends up back in the wilderness where he used to hide when he was on the run for the madman Saul, King Saul. Now he's the king, the fugitive king in exile, or he's about to be. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. They renew their loyalty to David. Well, then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. They'd been with him a long time, and they were sticking with him to the end. And he's taking inventory now with everybody who's left, everybody who hasn't betrayed him, and and going over to Absalom's side. Well, then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go? I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. And I am sure that Ittai's loyalty encouraged David, strengthened his heart. David still had the allegiance of a number of brave men. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the loyal ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. The Kidron is the ravine that separates the Temple Mount 
and the Mount of Olives. And so David is leaving the city now. And they cross over the Kidron. And they begin to rise and go up the Mount of Olives. Now they're looking down on the capital that they have conquered. But now they're being forced to abandon. He doesn't know if he'll ever return. This was his lowest low, certainly. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. David's faith isn't in symbols. It's not in relics. It's not even in the Ark of the Covenant. The king's faith is in the Lord himself and in the Lord's mercy. So he says, put the Ark back at its place. God is with me. He'll be with me. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahamaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. And David has hopes now of using these two priests as sort of undercover agents, informants. He hopes that they'll be able to crack Absalom's inner circle and report back to him. And so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And let me tell you, you know, those of you that are going with us to Israel soon, you walk up, to walk up the Mount of Olives barefoot, I mean, it's covered with rocks. There are rocks everywhere. I can't imagine walking up the Mount of Olives barefoot. I mean, it was a torturous ordeal. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. You know, it reminds me of Jesus' departure from Jerusalem after being rejected by the religious establishment during that last week. And you remember what Jesus did from the top of the Mount of Olives. He wept over the city just as David here weeps. And it's interesting, perhaps both David and Jesus, the son of David, wept at the very same spot. Remember too, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. And it's possible that David wept over the betrayal of his son Absalom at the very same spot where Jesus would weep just hours before his betrayal by Judas. Some interesting parallels going on here. It's interesting, even Jesus even told a parable of ten virgins who needed to keep oil in their lamps and be ready for his return. And it's interesting, David left behind ten concubines back in the palace waiting on him to return. Some interesting parallels. Well, verse 31. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. For you see, David was afraid of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a shrewd man. He was a wise man. And David knew that he would give good counsel to Absalom. And so he says, Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. And notice this. this. This shows you David's heart. 
in the midst of David's weeping, he worships God. Somebody told me this morning, didn't actually see it, but yesterday they were interviewing Mark Richt after the Georgia game. And they said, well, you've had a hard month there, Coach Rick. You know, I bet you're really thankful to God. I bet you're really praising God, you know, after this victory, kind of being sarcastic to him. And the guy told me this morning, he said, Rick turned and he snapped right back and he said, hey, I praise God whether we win or whether we lose. Now let's talk about the game. I like that. But hey, David, I mean, he's weeping. This is his worst defeat. And yet notice what he's doing. He's worshiping God. God is worthy to be worshipped in the good times and in the bad times. Psalm 3 is prefaced. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Let me encourage you to go home tonight and read Psalm 3 in parallel with this Bible study. I like how that psalm begins. And again, these are David's words as he's leaving the city. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And I love how he ends Psalm 3. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing is upon your people. Read that psalm tonight, Psalm 3. Well, verse 32 tells us David worshipped. As David worshipped, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. David plants another mole. Hushai, the private eye. Hushai, the spy guy. Sent right back into Absalom's inner circle. Do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they have with them their two sons, that guy, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Chapter 16. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? And so Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. You remember Mephibosheth? He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And here Ziba is accusing him of staying behind thinking that David is now going to be dethroned and the kingdom will go back to the dynasty of Saul and perhaps he'll be in line. 
Of course, we're going to find out later that that may have not been Mephibosheth's attitude at all. It may have just been Ziba putting words in his mouth. Well, so the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And we're going to find out later that David doesn't really know which one of them to believe. Mephibosheth's going to tell one story. Ziba's going to tell the other story. And so David's just going to split all the goods in half and, and say half's yours and half's yours. And, you know, you ever had that with two kids? You didn't know which one to believe. And so you just cut the dog in half. Half's yours, half's yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my Lord, O King. And later, this, as I said, this crippled Mephibosheth will claim that Ziba you know, made all this look like you know, he was forsaking David and pledging his loyalty to Absalom, but all the time, you know, Mephibosheth was crippled. He couldn't move, and so he was stuck there. Couldn't. Ziba got out before it didn't give him a ride. What's a crippled guy to do? So we'll, we'll find that out later. Now, when King David came to Baharim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. I mean, David's misfortune now brings out all of the Saul sympathizers. Shimei is one. He never liked David. Now that he's being kicked out of Jerusalem, he's happy about it. So he goes out and he starts throwing rocks and cursing David. And Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. This guy's got some nerve. Those are, these are insults he's hurling toward the king. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Now Shimei is not only flirting with David's judgment, but he's also flirting with God's judgment. He's putting some words in God's mouth. Notice that. Let me suggest to you, Always be careful what you call a judgment from God. Right after Hurricane Katrina, there were some folks that started talking about how the storm was God's judgment on the evil city of New Orleans. You know, when I got down there, I discovered the only problem with that theory is that it affected just about every part of the town except the French Quarter in Bourbon Street. They were the most wicked parts of New Orleans. And they were the ones that came out unscathed. I mean, Bourbon Street's back up and running with their, you know, their perversions and, and drunkenness and party. You know, a couple of days after the hurricane. The hurricane didn't even touch the most wicked part of the town. If Katrina was a judgment from God... Why in the world did it wipe out poor Pastor Kevin's house and not the strip joints? Be careful what you call God's judgment. Sometimes we can, we can be real rash and end up wrong. As was Shimei. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. That's one way of shutting a guy up. Let's take off his head. You know, isn't it amazing? You know, we've seen this before. People always trying to help David get ahead. It, and, isn't that interesting? 
But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. You remember when uh, James and John, uh, when Jesus was rejected by the Samaritans and James and John said, you know, what should we do? Call fire down from heaven. And, and Jesus says, oh, you sons of thunder. You know, what am I to do with you? And or more or less. And that's kind of what David says to the sons of Zariah. You guys are trigger happy. So let him curse. Because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. What a merciful heart. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now all the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, the private eye, the spy guy, you remember him? David's friend came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? He he knew Hushai and his father were real close buddies. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose His I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. And of course, this was all a lie. It's part of the sabotage, part of the espionage that's at work here. Well, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. In the Oriental world in ancient times, when a king, a new king took over the throne, he inherited his predecessor's harem. And Ahithophel's motive here behind this maneuver is to signal to the people a new regime. And yet from God's perspective, this was a judgment that God had predicted on David for his sin with Bathsheba. You remember what God told David? What you did secretly will be done to you openly. And so now Absalom, he makes a a scene of this and takes David's concubines and defiles them openly in front of all of the nation. And I think Ahithophel had one more motivation. Yeah, he did this to my granddaughter. I'm going to see to it that it's done to him, but openly in a disgraceful, abominable kind of a way. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And it brought great shame to David. And Ahithophel 
Trust me, Ahithophel relished every moment of this. He finally gets the revenge that he's been waiting on for years. In his commentary here, David Guzik, he writes this, Ahithophel was willing to see these women abused, Absalom grievously sin, and the kingdom of Israel suffer greatly, all simply to satisfy his bitter longing for revenge. Because I'm telling you, bitterness will go to no ends to get its revenge. That's why you need to pull up that root of bitterness in your heart before it grows even further. Well, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired of the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. In other words, Ahithophel was a master strategist. And when it came to these kind of political maneuverings and power plays and wranglings, he knew all the right strings to pull at just the right times. He was brilliant. Chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. I mean, at that moment, David is resting by the road. This was wise counsel. Now is the time to strike. David is still reeling. He's, he's yet to regroup. Absalom has big mo on his side. He's got the momentum. Now is the time to strike while the iron is hot. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai and let us hear what he says to do. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. Now remember, Hushai is on David's team. He's working undercover. He knows it was great counsel. But, but it's not good for David. For said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. <laughs> now you remember, they're sitting by a pond somewhere refreshing themselves. They're, they're, they're beat. But he pictures them as these wild bears. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. Hushai paints David as this desert fox. He's cunning. He's adept at wilderness warfare. You attack his camp, chances are he won't be there anymore. He's an Osama bin Laden. He's kind of like a mountain rabbit. You won't be able to get him anyway. He has holes everywhere to hide in. Now, really, he's just sitting by a pond soaking his feet. His feet are tired. The truth be known, David had probably, probably been years since David had slept out under the stars. I mean, he'd been living the pampered life of a king. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Your father's sneaky. He'll strike first. He'll strike hard. And even if your army wins a battle, the initial news will be of your casualties and David's surprise attack. And it might just discourage your troops. You see what he's doing here. Now, Ahithophel's counsel was exactly what Absalom needed to do to defeat David. Hushai knew it. This is why Hushai gives him a different story. 
Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. Ahithophel has said, strike quickly, use your speed. Hushai suggests a show of force. Take your time. Rally all the men of Israel. Take your time, man. He's really buying time for David. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. God saw to it that Ahithophel's plan was rejected and Hushai's was adopted. Well, then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, this time cross over the Jordan River, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan... And Ahamaz, these were the priest's sons, they stayed at Enrogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, their cover was blown. They're ratted out. Now they're in grave danger. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the women at the house, they said, Where are those guys? They're hot on their trail. And so the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook, and when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Whew! They made it. Now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. And at that point it must have still been up in the air exactly whose plan they would choose. And so David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. They successfully engineered a night crossing of the Jordan River. Cross the Jordan in the dark was no small task. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Do you remember what Judas did after he betrayed Jesus and then realized he had made an awful mistake? He too went out and hung himself. Ahithophel was so proud a person that he couldn't stand that his advice had been rejected. And so he went home and he hung himself. It's been said, bitterness is an acid that does far more damage on where it's stored than on where it's poured. And Ahithophel is proof. 
Bitterness, revenge, that need to be vindicated mattered more to Ahithophel than his own life. And a brilliant man ends in a bitter death. Well, then David went to Mahanaim. And remember, this was Ishbosheth's former capital. And imagine on that night, he laid down in bed with Bathsheba. Imagine on that night, he never dreamed that one day he would be a fugitive king on the run from his own son held up in the capital of the disgraced son of Saul, Ishbosheth. How could he have ever put those two things together? But, but it happened. And that is exactly why he's in this bed in Mahanaim. It's because he went to bed with Bathsheba. I'm telling you, the sins you think nobody will ever discover, will ever find out, trust me, everyone will find out. And they'll have long-lasting repercussions. And Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. And do you think Joab liked that? No. Then Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruah, Joab's mother. In other words, he was Joab's cousin. And so Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead, which, of course, was east of the Jordan River. And that happened when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Brazalil, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And notice David finds supporters east of the Jordan there in Gilead. And these three relatively obscure men come out of nowhere to provide David aid at a very strategic time. It's been said, friends in need are friends indeed. And David finds some true friends.